page 13 in the notebooks that are accompanying the series When We Have to Choose. You see that on the screen. And Larry has some additional copies of the notes. So if you don't have them, then he can get a set to you. And you can turn that to page 13. And as evidenced by the props behind me and the moat that you had to come through and the gauntlet that you went through over in the West Hallway and all of that, tomorrow night begins our Vacation Bible School. If you have not registered your children, then please do that before you leave today. You can stop by the Information Center or you can leave and uh, do it online, cbctrenton.com slash kingdomchronicles. And then uh, tomorrow night at 6 o'clock, we will uh, begin five days of what we're uh, quite sure is going to be a great uh, time for our entire church. And uh, we hope will be a time where some young people come to Jesus and that uh, all who come grow in Jesus. So pray about that, even if you don't have children or you're not involved in the uh, program, that all will go well for our first vacation Bible school. And then in your uh, program, there are a number of things just uh, coming up for you to make uh, note of. Week from Wednesday is our uh, last backyard fellowship of the summer, and that's going to be at 6.30 at the home of David and Christy Brinkley in Gibraltar. There are maps to their place out at the uh, Information Center. We had the August backyard fellowship at their place last year, so a number of you already know how to get there. But if not, we have those maps, and we tell you in the program what it is uh, we ask you to bring. So that's a week from Wednesday. And then on Labor Day, we have our annual Labor Day picnic. At uh, This one's going to be again this year at the Lake Erie uh, Metro Park. So just make note of that on your calendar. All right, page 13 today, starting late, because this is just an unusual day today in a number of ways. Not only the castle and all of that, but if you were here in our first hour, uh, you know that we had some testimonies from folks who were able to go a couple of weeks ago to the uh, Mexico ministry uh, trip, and we also had a number of pictures uh, for that. So we uh, were longer total in that uh, uh, service than we normally are, and thus starting this one a little bit later. Thank you for your indulgence on all counts. Page 13, when we have to choose. We have seen that as we try to make God-honoring decisions, well-meaning people often use incorrect methods to determine the will of God. So that was one of the first things we talked about, some of the erroneous ways that people try to decipher God's will in their personal decision-making. And we saw that people use feeling-based decision-making, and they use outcome-based decision-making and opportunity-based decision-making. And we tried to show how it is that all of those are wrong and how we can go wrong when we use those approaches. And we gave a fourth approach that we've been trying to explain over the last few weeks. The fourth and correct approach is a purpose-based approach to decision-making. So beginning with the end in mind, I look at what God has said His end, His objective, His purpose is for His world, and then I look at how I fit into advancing that purpose in God's world. And so, over the last few weeks, we've talked about that purpose being, yes, to glorify God, but that's too nebulous, that's too general. To glorify God means to display His character in whatever I do, but God has been more specific in saying that at different times, He has chosen different ways to display His glory in His world. 
and that in this age he is doing that through the agency of his church. If you've not been able to be with us for those messages, those and all of our messages, Worship Hour and Discovering God Hour, this hour, are always online. You can go back and listen to those and you'll have the notes in hand. But we've tried to make the case that God has been clear that he's achieving his glory through the agency of the church. And therefore, if I'm going to make decisions, if you're going to make decisions that are pleasing to God, then I need to make my individual decisions in life in a way that advances the mission that God has given to his church. And we summarized that with four facts of life last week. We looked at the fact that God, that, that uh, purpose determines life on pages uh, 11 and 12. That purpose determines life, and we saw that God has given you, secondly, a mission. He has prepared each of us for the mission, and God has placed us in the mission. Those four facts of, of life. So I encourage you to marinate in what we've talked about over the last few weeks, because that should be then the environment, the mindset with which you make your decisions, small and great. Now, that is all, everything that we've said in these prior weeks is all predicated on the idea that God has spoken and that God has spoken clearly, that God has told us about himself, about ourselves, and what his purpose is in his world so that we can then make decisions in line with that purpose. Now, in this lesson, you see on page 13, we then want to talk about where it is God has spoken and how we use the vehicle through which God has spoken, Scripture, the Bible, how we use that in the right way in order to come up with appropriate interpretations of what God has said. So it's one thing for us to say God has a sovereign will, as we did several weeks ago. And that means that God has planned everything that comes to pass, good, bad, and ugly. Nothing takes God by surprise, not just because he knows it, but rather he knows it because he's planned it. Some people think, yes, I know God knows everything, but they think he looked down through and he saw a movie, sort of. You know, he looked down, he saw what was going to happen, and he's got that all registered, so he knows. But God's the producer and the director of that movie. At the end of that film, the credits go by and they all say God. You know, he's the, he's the director, the producer, the key grip. What is a key grip? You guys ever seen that at the end? I have no idea what that is. You probably know what that is, don't you, Rob? That's Rob. He knows. But all the credits say God because he produced, he directed, he made, he conceived the movie. So he wasn't informed that these things were going to happen. He has planned what's going to happen in his world, and therefore he knows. So God has a sovereign plan, and you don't know his sovereign plan until after the fact, until after it happens. But God also has his moral or revealed will, the things he has made known. His sovereign will is only known after it happens, but his moral will, what he desires, he has made known by revealing it. And he's revealed it in Scripture. So Deuteronomy 29, 29, we saw this a few weeks ago, but it's a perfect small verse that encapsulates both of these, God's sovereign will and his revealed, the, what he has made known versus what is secret to him. 
And Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. Well, what are the secret things? The stuff he's planned that he hasn't told me about. His sovereign plan. The secret things belong to the Lord. But these are given. And it's these commands, Deuteronomy 29, remember Deuter, second. Namas, law, Deuteronomy, second law. The book of Deuteronomy is about the giving of God's law. And these things have been given to your children and to your children's children that you might obey them. So God has the secret things, his sovereign plan, but he has the things that he has made known. And where has he made those things known? In his word, in scripture, in the Bible. So if I'm going to know how to make decisions and you're going to know how to make decisions, then I've got to know how to use the book. And we then have to be people of the book, not merely in name, but in practice. You see, friends, it is easy to, be, to claim to be people of the book, but to an actual practice, not consult with the book, not use the book as directed. This is called Community Bible Church. There's a reason for that. We believe the Bible is given by God to tell us about Him, about us, what He's doing in His world and how we fit in it. Now, if we really believe that, we'll consult the book then. The slogan for our church is the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. Built on what? Built on the Word of God. Who is it? Community Bible Church. So you all get the idea you're at a church that kind of makes a big deal about the Bible. But you can make a big deal, we can make a big deal by putting it on our sign and putting it, making it our slogan. But I've got to use it and you've got to use it in practical ways in your everyday life. And that's what page 13 then is telling us. At the heart of Christianity is the book called the Bible. In it, God has revealed to man everything we need to know about God and what he desires from our lives. The Bible was given by God to tell us who God is and what we should do with that information. So if we're going to use the Bible as God intended it, we need to understand a few things. One is, it's not just a book like every other book. Since the Bible is the source of truth from which Christianity is derived, it's logically prior to all other Christian beliefs. So, you know, who is Jesus? Well, how do I know who Jesus is? And how do I know what Jesus did and why he did it? I only know it from the book. That's how, and that's what we mean by it being logically prior. We've been told. Without the Bible, we wouldn't know things about the Trinity and Christ and salvation in the church. This fact is reflected in the creeds of most evangelical churches, including ours. Our Constitution says this. Why does it say grace there? And grace is Constitution. Anybody want to know? Because a church named Grace Baptist used our notes and, and changed them and gave, and, and gave them back to me and reformatted them and didn't remove grace from all of the spots. So I'm going to sue our brothers and sisters for copyright infringement and we'll build another wing onto the church once we're successful at, at that. 
And all evangelical statements of faith, including ours, have a statement exactly like this or quite similar. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God and therefore is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. That's a beautiful statement. But it's only beautiful in life if it's actually played out, as those last two words say, in and practice. So it is our final authority not only in matters of faith, that is what we believe, but in what we do, practice. And that's where we often fail. Yes, we would all nod, yes, amen, brother. I only know about who Jesus is or anything about the Trinity and all of that stuff of the faith from Scripture. But when it comes to what I do on Monday and Thursday and how I align my life in practice, the Bible is not always consulted. The very first article of our statement of faith as a whole says, We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired. It's a perfect treasure of heavenly instructions. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union, the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creed, and opinions should be tried. So despite that, despite this doctrinal commitment to the authority of Scripture, there are a number of ways in which the Bible's authority is undermined in daily living. And that includes the matter of discerning God's will about particular decisions. So let's list some of those erroneous ways of using the Bible. One is when we see the Bible as a book of sayings. A book of sayings. So for many people, the Bible is like one big big book of Proverbs. The Bible is just full of these proverbial sayings. So you have thing, book collections like that. Poor Richard's Almanac, written by Ben Franklin. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. God helps those, anybody know? You would be amazed at how many people think God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. And I've had people say this to me. You know, I'll be counseling with them and they go, you know, and I was going through that and then I remembered that verse, you know, that says God helps those who help themselves. And then I'm, you know, the person I'm counseling, they're, they're depressed maybe. And now I'm going to depress them more by saying, you made that up, okay? You just slandered God. So I have to find a tactful way to tell them that's not really in the Bible. And in fact, it's contrary to the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. That would be us. We're helpless before God, and He helps us. Okay. You know, stitching time saves nine. Penny saves the penny earned. And there is a book in your Bible called the Book of Proverbs, and it is these short, moral, truthful sayings. But a lot of people think that's what the Bible as a whole is. It's a collection of sayings. And so they, they treat it that way. They then atomize the Bible. A-T-O-M, atom. Atomize the Bible. That is, they find little snippets of the Bible. But see, those snippets, as we're going to see, are part of a larger context. 
And you can only understand the snippet as you put it with the verses around it. And as you put it in the context of the book which it, within which it's contained. This is why when I teach how to get the most out of your Bible, which I will beginning September 18th, and for those of you that have not taken it on Wednesday nights in our community institute, that's the class for you, how to get the most out of your Bible. We go through some of this, and one of the things I tell folks is one of the reasons that, we, uh, that you need to be careful about the verses in our English translations is because those verses do not stand, they were never designed to stand by themselves. The verses are contained within chapters, and the chapters are contained within a book, and the book's contained within the context of the whole Bible. And so that atomized verse has to be understood in that larger context. And verses were added centuries after the Bible was written, just so we could find stuff. So, you know, when the Bible was first penned, there were no verses. When the Bible says in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus walked into the synagogue, it says he stood up and he received the scroll of Isaiah from the attendant of the synagogue. And then it says, and he found the place where it is written. (laughs) Now that's impressive. Because finding the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, which is what Jesus read. That would be for us Isaiah chapter 61. So Jesus knows how to find what we call Isaiah 61.1 without any of it being marked. There were no verses. We added the verses centuries later so we could find stuff and we could say turn to and we could index it and it's all very helpful. But each verse is not a self-contained truth. The Bible is not to be atomized. The Bible is not just a collection of sayings. And if we see it that way, we won't understand it. We certainly won't be able to use it to make decisions in our daily lives. The Bible, here's another way that people think of it. It's a collection of stories with morals. So the Bible does contain, just like it contains Proverbs, sayings, it also contains stories that teach a point. But the Bible is not just a collection of stories with morals. And so people who who think that look to the Bible for that purpose. Look to the stories and then glean what you can as a positive moral affirmation out of that story. And often, then, the affirmation, the point of the story is missed when people do that. As an example, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He takes a young boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish, and he multiplies it. Now, that's a story. That's a true story, uh, but it's a story. And it is a story that has a point to it. But if you haven't read the whole Bible to get the, the, the whole context of what the Bible is communicating, you might miss the moral of that story. If you read the whole Bible, you'll get a number of ideas, but chief among them is this, <laughs> that this world, this universe, and life are all about God. And if you just do a cursory reading through the Bible, you'll see that God is central to the overall story of the Bible and all the individual stories in the Bible. 
So now when I come to an individual story, since God is central, I'm looking for where God fits into the story, first of all. Not what many people do. Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes. And the moral of the story is we need to learn to share. And so children are taught in Sunday school, Jesus wants you to share your lunch. Jesus does want you to share your lunch. But that story is about the fact that Jesus is God. And Jesus made those fish. And Jesus made that bread. And Jesus can make more fish and more bread anytime he wants. The, the hero of that story is God. The hero of the individual stories is supposed to be God. Because the hero of the overall story is God. So we don't just use the Bible as a collection of stories with a moral. Third, we look at the Bible as a book of recipes. Book of recipes to make life taste better. You know, as the, as the poster in my Sunday school class when I was a kid said on the wall that was in the same color scheme, same design as the then current Coca-Cola ad, things go better with Coke. It said things go better with Jesus. And, you know, as a kid, I'm looking at that, and that's a cool poster we've got in our Sunday school. And I had no discernment as a kid. It was years later that I thought about that. And I thought, you know, I've been a, a Christian following Jesus since I was 19. I would never change that. I thank God that I'm a follower of Jesus. But things have not always gone better. Actually, sometimes things have been worse. They, they've even been worse, particularly because I follow Jesus. If I wasn't following Jesus, then I would have more people who like me and want to hang around with me when I go to work and all of that stuff. Things don't always go better with Jesus. But we live in a Joel Osteen world. And you're pursuing your best life when? Right? Your best life now. So in the here and now, God wants you to be a champion God wants you to enjoy life. And so, when I, Joel, preach, it's hard to distinguish my preaching from a motivational speech with Jesus sprinkled in. And we live in a culture who wants to give me the recipe that will work to make life better. But, you know, you don't have to do a lot of digging into the Bible to find out for a lot of the folk in the Bible, it didn't go better. Right? They were killed. I mean, for heaven's sake, friends, Jesus, God the Son, was killed. So if God would just come and talk to people, then people would know the way and they would follow the way. Right? Well, that happened once. God actually came, and he talked to people, and he walked with people, 
and he was murdered. So what do sinful people do when they get their hands on God? So it didn't go well for Jesus from that standpoint. It didn't go well for the apostles. It didn't go well for those at the end of Hebrews 11 in Faith's Hall of Fame who were destitute of food, lived in caves, were without a home. Remember all of that? Naked. That's what... And they are the heroes of the faith. Now, I'm just saying, I'd be willing to gamble if I were a gambling man. I haven't even done, I haven't even done a check on this. I'll let you run. I'll let you do it if you want. Just Google to your heart's content, Joel Osteen and Hebrews 11. And see if you can find his sermon on the people who were destitute of food lived in caves, were killed for their faith. And I'm just willing to wager you can't find that. And if you do find it, I want to listen to that. Okay? So what will happen is the Bible is a book of recipes, and what do you do with recipes? Well, you look up the one you want. I mean, there's, there's stuff in this recipe book that I tried and I don't like it. It tastes lousy. So just don't turn to that page anymore. Tear that page out. So I'm, I've got another money-making idea here. Okay. It is called the perforated Bible. And our advertising campaign is, are you tired of those jagged edges? When you find a recipe you don't like, and even do it, we should do you know perforations around the verses since we're all atomizing. You can just take individual verses out. You know we laugh, but in practice that's what happens. We look at the places in the Bible that we like, the stuff that tastes good, but there's stuff in the Bible that is hard. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, our brother Paul, he's speaking, Peter is speaking of what Paul wrote, and he says, our brother Paul says some things that are hard. So there are things in the Bible that are hard for me to get my mind around, hard for you to get your mind around, and we just like to skip that stuff. That's what the recipe approach does. But notice this quote. What we need instead of a recipe approach is a transcendent theology which flows out of the big picture. But unfortunately, it's been replaced by recipe theology. It's a way of thinking that keeps its focus on the particulars of life. The center of transcendent theology is God and His character and His purpose. The center of the recipe, of course, is man, his needs and well-being. My quarrel with recipe theology is not with the biblical principles it affirms, or with its requirement that we follow them. It's rather with its tendency to make biblical principles into a formula for success. You guys and gals, how many series are five keys to? Seven steps to, right? So here's your formula. And if you'll plug these five steps in, these seven steps in, then it'll, then it'll come out right. 
a formula for success. God has not written a cookbook for living with recipes for every dish we may want to prepare. He responds to our individual situations by inviting us to participate in a story bigger than our lives. Recipe theology studies the bits and pieces of life to help us tell our story better. God invites us to join Him in telling His. It's a very good quote. So, the Bible as a book of sayings, stories with morals, recipes, or the Bible as a conversation piece. This is... So I know enough about the Bible, I know enough about the controversies in the Bible to be a theological trivia buff. And so I like to, you know, get around the table, the cup of coffee, and just talk theological trivia with people. And I want to focus on all of the things that I know Christians disagree about, so let's, let's talk about those. It's a conversation piece. And I have met lots of people who like to talk about the Bible, who, if they would spend half of that time living out the Bible, rather than simply talking about the Bible, they would be engaged in pleasing God and doing His will. A fifth erroneous way is to look at the Bible as a prescription, a prescription. We saw the recipes to make life taste better, but this one, the prescription is to fix my wants and my feelings. And the Bible's got a prescription for that, we think. So, I, I feel... Um, used, let's say. I feel hurt. And the Bible's job is to heal my hurts. Now, as a byproduct of the large story of the Bible, God will begin to heal our hurts. God's a healer. God can heal physically. God can heal emotionally. God can heal spiritually most of all. But that is, now I want you to note, that is the byproduct of getting the large story of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is not that. It's that once we pursue the purpose of the Bible, which is for us to fit into how we bring glory to God, as a byproduct of that now, God begins to heal our hurts. We see His hand in the hurts that we have experienced we begin to see that this was not chance. We begin to see that God was there and God had a design for me. And then I begin to heal. But first, I've got to see God. And I've got to see His activity. And then I see myself within that and under that umbrella. And now, indeed, the Bible becomes, and the gospel becomes a balm for my soul. And then lastly, the Bible as paperweight. You know, the bigger the Bible you have, the more it hurts when you hit people with it. So it's good to get the biggest Bible you can. If you're going to be a Bible thumper, then your Bible should thump. 
when it hits people, okay? And so many of us have grown up with, and maybe you have this, and if you do, I'm not picking on you. There's nothing wrong with this. But the, the Bible becomes kind of this display piece on the coffee table. So the big Bible on the coffee table. We had one of these when I was a kid. And I was afraid of it for a number of reasons. I was afraid of it because when I was little, if I dropped it, it would break my foot. It was big. I was afraid of it because when I left it on the coffee table and ventured to open it, it had scary pictures in it. Those pictures of Bible times in those old Bibles are spooky. They sort of still creep me out when I, when I look at them, even as an adult. There's pictures of Jesus knocking on the door at night. Right? What's well, at night? You're a kid. You're scared. I'm already scared. And then it's Jesus knocking on this door. And, you know, I didn't, it wasn't until years later that somebody pointed out to me all of the, all of the features of this picture, but there's no, there's no knob on the outside because only you can let Jesus in. Okay? So there's Jesus, but Jesus is, he, I, you know, and, and this is no sacrilege, I'm just saying the picture, it just looks weird. Jesus just looks weird there. He's scary. I, so then you say, I want to go to heaven and live forever with Jesus. Don't you, children? And I, and I go, well, I know I'm supposed to, but get me a different picture. But there's Jesus, and his feet are like a couple inches off the ground. So he's got the, the halo thing, and is knocking at the door, and frankly, he just looks really effeminate when he knocks on the door. You know, I've, I've, I've pictured Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, busting on that door, okay? If I'm, if I'm coming to that door, you're going to know I'm there. It's going to take a couple of knocks, and you know I'm there, okay? But this Jesus, he's just sort of scratching on the door. His hand's kind of weird. Now, that's the kind of Bible that's just there for display. It's a paperweight. And I'll just ask you guys this and then we'll move on. Many of you bring a Bible with you on Sundays. For those who don't have a Bible, we, we give out Bibles every week. We want everybody to own one. But the idea of owning it is to use it during the week. And I wonder how many of us the only time we open the Bible is when we come together and I say, turn to. And if that's the case, the Bible has become a paperweight. Now, all of these are inadequate ways to view Scripture, though all of them contain some kernel of truth, minus the last one. I mean, it is true that we should converse about the Bible. It is true, as I've said, that the Bible will heal your hurts, but it has to be used properly. The Bible contains sayings and stories with morals and so on. So they all contain some kernel of truth, but the Bible is far more than any of these and even far more than all of them combined. Here is what the Bible is. It is the revelation of God to us and therefore is perfect and without error. The revelation of God to us. Revelation. When I, you read the word revelation, you think of a book in the Bible, the last one, the 66th book of the Bible, is called the book of Revelation. That's not the way that word's being used there. The Bible is 
the revelation of God to us. The word revelation means this, to make known, to reveal. And so when we say there the Bible is the revelation of God to us, it is the making known, the revealing of God to us. So in the stories and the parables and the morals and the proverbs and the symbols and the commands and in every piece of that, it is all a making known, a revealing of God. We're going to see this explicitly in uh, a few pages. But right now, you should then be getting the idea, when I read the Bible, I should always be looking at how God fits into this, right? If it's the making known, the revealing of God, then I should always be asking myself, where is God in this? Where is God in the story of David and Goliath? Goliath. You know, where is God in Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon? Where is God in every piece of that? Because God is orchestrating all of it. God is, is superintending every piece of it. And it's all about making his character known. And so the Bible says about the Bible, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture, according to 2 Peter 1, came from God. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by any act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So it's given to, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, so that we may be adequate, thoroughly equipped. What's the purpose of the Bible? It makes God known. It reveals Him so that now I can fit into His story in His way. So that I can be thoroughly equipped. It is given then to equip us to live life, making choices that are pleasing to the God who is revealed in Scripture, who created us, and the God to whom we will answer. And so there's a seventh way to look at the Bible. We gave those six erroneous, inadequate ways. But here's the seventh and right way. The Bible is God's Word. And the Bible makes known to us, reveals to us, who God is. And if you look down at the bottom of the page, it reveals to us what God is doing. The Bible is God's Word. It tells us who He is. It tells us what He is doing. And then we fit ourselves into His overall story. Once we know who He is and once we know what He is doing, now I can see how I can plot my life, plan my life intentionally to fit into what He is doing in His world. But not until that. None of that will happen unless I use the Bible the seventh way as God's Word. Now take a look at the next page, and we're going to finish. It is noon, the appointed hour. But the middle of the page, the Bible reveals our call to be in God's story. So it's God's Word telling us who He is, what He is doing, and it makes known 
our calling to be in God's story. And as we leave, I want you to think about what's in the box. Which of the above seven ways to treat the Bible most closely resembles your own approach to Scripture? I know everybody here believes the seventh one, professes the seventh one, but how do you actually use the Bible? In practice, how do you view it? And think about that. And this week, I would encourage you to read God's Word prior to next Sunday when we open it up. You say, well, what should I read? Just do this. There are only five chapters in 1 Peter. If you'll read one of those chapters each day, it will help you see what I've been blathering about for the last several weeks in 1 Peter. Because one of the things I've got to do when I give individual messages out of a book is I've got to know what that book's about. And then try to see how this passage fits into that overall. And it will help you if you see that as well. So just take one of those chapters, five of these next seven days, six days prior to next Sunday, and it will help prepare you for what we look at in First Peter, okay? All right, let's ask God to go with us, and we'll continue from there next week. Father, we thank you for your word because it is a light and a lamp for us, because it is sharper than any double-edged sword, because it is alive and it is powerful. And all of this is true because it is yours, because it is from you and because it's about you and because it is revealing you. Because of all of that, it is not just like any other book. And Lord, it is such a marvelous gift that you have given to us that we could have your word in our hands, in our language. Oh, Lord God, forgive us for taking your word for granted. And Lord, we simply want you to do quick fixes in our lives when we may go for months and even years neglecting your story, your revelation to us. Help us, Lord, to see the folly, the foolishness of this, that we cannot live in a way that pleases you unless we know you and we know you through the way you've made yourself known. We must know you and then know what you want and what you expect out of us. And then as we align our lives that way, your spirit does its healing work. As we go through circumstances that are not necessarily better, sometimes worse, but we endure those circumstances with a completely different perspective because now we know you. And we know you are the God of that circumstance. And so, Lord, help us to indulge your word. Help us to ra ravage your word. Let us begin that this week and let us learn of it next Lord's Day. Go with us, we ask you. Bring us back safely. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.